I actually um, bit my tongue last <laughs> night in my sleep, which woke me up. So I'm battling this sort of um, hurt tongue. <laughs> Man, I, I don't know why, but I do that really regularly. I haven't done it in ages. I do it so frequently, like yeah. like weekly, fortnightly, like so often. I don't know what it, it is. It was so it aggressive. How I sleep. It was yeah. so aggressive as well. It woke me up. Yeah, horrible. like it shocked me because I felt like I just fell fell asleep. Yeah, and probably about you know an hour or two in, into my sleep, it just bit my tongue. And it's horrible. It's so strange. <laughs> Maybe that's like some sort of metaphor or something. <laughs> <laughs> Hope not. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Game of Life with Dan and Harmon. It's just Dan here today, but I'm so thrilled to be joined by one of my favourite comedians in Australia right now. Kirsty Wiebeck, thank you for being on the podcast today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Now, I've got to start with a story which I've told on the podcast before. Um, but ever since starting this podcast or pre-starting this podcast, I've always had, you know, sort of a social anxiety. So I've always sort of been reluctant to go up to someone I admire from afar and say, hey, I appreciate your work. But as this podcast has sort of progressed I sort of around um, Comedy Festival last year actually summoned up the courage to go up to you and say, hey, I really appreciate your work, which was a big thing for me. So that was sort of a um, a life change. <laughs> not a life, well, not like a dramatic life-changing experience for me, but like sort of a step in a positive direction to help me sort of unload some of that social anxiety through doing this. Yeah, it sounds like a, yeah. a marker of progress, yeah. which is awesome. Yeah. And two birds, one stone because it, you know, showed you that your confidence was yeah. growing a little bit and it also made my day. So well, <laughs> thank <that's> you. <laughs> very welcome. Like it's very strange to me because I think a year ago if my if my co-hosts sort of um, decided to sort of take some time off, I don't think I'd be able to do this by myself if it weren't for that for those experiences that I've had in the last year doing this podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, how great is that? Yeah, it's so yeah. good. You must – well, I hope yeah. that you take the time out to feel quite proud of yourself yeah. because overcoming social anxiety, mm. I, I can't imagine that would be an easy yeah. thing to do. So it's – um yeah, it's pretty cool that having a podcast yeah, is right. something that's, you know, made you able to overcome yeah. some of those things. So, yeah, well done, Legend. And what – let. You know what? It's funny because I had um, someone in here yesterday talking about this sort of stuff as well and I sort of came to a decision sort of during last year when we were doing this podcast to say, hey, I'm not really doing this for other people. I'm doing this for me <laughs> now at this point. <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how have you been as a, like a person? As you, have, you all, have you been like socially anxious yourself? No, not socially anxious. Mm. Um, yeah, I've always been quite a social person mm. and I think it's, it's probably intrinsically linked to my love of making people laugh. Yeah. So I, like I wasn't an anxious child, but yeah. I remember really properly coming out of my shell when I realized that I was funny, Yeah. which was, you know, probably when I was about eight or nine and I'd kind of had some difficulties making friends when I was a bit younger than that, mm. which is pretty normal. Yeah. I mean, you're a little kid, right? Like, yeah. you, you know, I'd, I had, you know, in year one and year two, like I remember I had, you know, some issues with sort of friendship groups and things. Yeah. But then 
I knew I was funny because I had funny thoughts, but yes. I kind of kept them to myself. Yeah. And, I mean, I well, I should... I should actually say that I, I thought that I was funny. I didn't know that yeah. I was funny. I thought yeah. I was funny. Like I amused myself. It's not until you actually make someone else laugh. Like, well, that's oh, right. Hold on. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. And so I, yeah. I kind of relaxed more, you know, in, in year three and four. Yeah. And I remember that I used to, yeah, I used to love making my mates laugh and that it kind of became my major driver in everything yeah. I was doing. So in class and, you know, on the playground or whatever, like, I was just always trying to think of something funny to do or say to make my mates laugh. And so, you know, I think that, like always enjoying making people laugh, has probably made it, it's probably just prevented anything like social anxiety creeping in. Yeah, right. Because it's, it's almost like you have a purpose when you're going into interactions. Yeah, but, yeah. and I mean, having said that as well, like I just genuinely love people and I love mm. getting to know them. And not to say that people with social anxiety don't. Yeah. Um, however, I feel like that those motivating forces probably has blocked anything like that creeping in. Yeah, right. Because I know a lot of my mates, yes. you know, who who do have social anxiety, they talk about it not necessarily being something that they've had since they were a child or like a lot of them talk about it sort of developing later in life or in their teens yeah. and yeah, it's different for, me, for everyone. It was sort of during high school. Yeah, right. Because we sort of moved around a lot as I uh, when I was a kid, so mm-hmm. I never sort of felt like I was truly settled at a school or in a house or had sort of a solid foundation with um, you know a friendship group that I could truly you know have the time to you know come out of my shell. Yeah, if, so I was always starting over again every couple of years, which was very tough. I feel like that's a really yeah. common thread. Yeah. Like, I've, you know, and not exclusively, but I've heard that a lot mm. from my mates as well. Like a lot of them had sort of transient childhoods. Yeah. And which kind of makes sense. Like you're developing, aren't you? And yes. you're developing in every way. Like your your brains are still developing. You're trying to develop socially and, you know, you, you start to settle in with your yeah. mates and then suddenly you've got to pick up and move schools yeah. again. So it does make sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but... <laughs> <laughs> so you're from you're from Canberra. Yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks, you know thanks for dragging me out of the closet. <laughs> I I grew up in Canberra as well. Did actually. you? Yes. Oh yeah, right on. Um, so Charmwood, do you? Mm-hmm. Are you familiar? With, yeah, yeah, Belco. Yeah, around that around that area. <laughs> yeah. There's also Beniathan. I don't know if you've heard of Beniathan. Yeah, that's at Tuggeranong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was sort of I, I grew up in Canberra as well. Mm, so I yeah, feel right. Like a sort of kinship with anyone else who's also from Canberra because of the, <laughs> it feels like they're very few and far between. Yeah, well, yeah. the majority of Canberrans that I've met in my adult life have been here in Melbourne. Yeah, <laughs> I think we all flee. <laughs> you either like you yeah. either get yourself a cushy government job and stay. Yeah, that's what my dad worked for the AFP. He didn't really do anything exciting. He worked right. for their accounts department. Okay. Like, oh, <laughs> <snooze>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. See my parents, uh, my so my granddad on my mum's side was in the army yeah. and then my dad was in the Air Force. Yeah. So gotcha. there's a lot of that as well. Like yeah. a lot of people you meet from Canberra have sort of military families yes. as well. So, how, how did you find Canberra when you? Um, I, I had a fun time there. So I had lots of great mates. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed school. I had a good time in school. I was heavily involved in sports and 
drama and, you know, I went to school with some pretty rad people. Yeah. So I had a really good time in school. Um, after school I had some really good mates that were sort of, you know, attached to uni and jobs that I had at the time. But by the time I was in my early 20s I was like, there's got to be something bigger out there. Mm. Like I, I had actually probably from like my late teens I had this yeah. overpowering desire to get out of there. Yeah. And I stuck around mostly to complete TAFE. What, what, what did you study at TAFE? So I went to TAFE and I did, um, I wanted to be a journalist. And then what happened was I partied too much in year 11 and 12. Yeah, right. <laughs> so as you yeah. probably know, yes. unless it's a private school in Canberra, yeah. you go to college for year yes. 11 and 12. Yeah. Um, so I went to a really fun college. I went to Narrabunda College, which was he- heavily geared towards the arts. Yeah. And had a ball, just met my people there, partied yep. way too hard, thought that I was getting too low a university admission index to get into journalism, so didn't apply. Yeah. Um, and then I remember my dad said to me, if you just go and start working, you'll never go back and study. And mm. he, yeah. Yeah. But, but, but he thought that deep down an older me yeah. would have wanted younger me to have studied, which he was actually right. Yes. And he knew me quite well because he and I are very similar. Mm. And so I think he was like, I think, I think you should do this. And so I took, I took his advice. I went to TAFE, had a ball at TAFE, did public relations, which was your initial question. I did. Yeah. <laughs> I did a diploma of communication in public relations. Mm. And then that two-year diploma meant I got a year taken off the bachelor degree at Uni of Canberra. So I popped over and did that. And while I was doing that, I went back to TAFE and at the same time I did a diploma of event management. So I came out of the four years with two diplomas and a degree. Yeah. And then I put them all in the document shredder metaphorically and moved to Taiwan. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a pivot. (laughs) (laughs) Look, it doesn't make any sense. Even to me. Like <laughs> while I'm saying it out loud yeah. now, I'm like, yeah, I, I did all of that study and then went and taught English and studied Mandarin. How was how was that? <laughs> the best. Yeah. It was the best. I went for a year because I'd always wanted to learn Mandarin. Yeah. And so I went for a year with a view of learning Mandarin. Oh, obviously, I didn't think that I was going to learn the whole of Mandarin yeah, yeah, in a year. Sure, yeah. but, I, but I wanted to dip a toe in, in, in 12 months and... um. It was really, it was interesting. I loved Taiwan. I adored it. Uh, The job I took from Australia to get my visa to go over there was suboptimal at best. It was horrible. The boss at the school I was teaching at was awful. Um, They took our passports. Uh, They made me live with someone who wasn't really... You know, she and I weren't really matched. I, I think they made us live together because... We were the same age. We were both yeah. 22 and we were both from Australia basically mm-hmm. and that's where the similarities mm-hmm. ended. <laughs> so we had a, we had a difficult time living and working together yeah. but she ended up leaving a few yeah. months in. Yeah, right. do, um, you, do you think that was some sort of test on their end to see if the see if you're ready to, to do it? To do the, on whose end, sorry? Like, do, do you think it was there like a test on you guys to see if you could actually last? Do you think that was on purpose? Oh, no, it was too hard for them to bring other people over. <laughs> I, think, I wish that were it. Um, I think that's just the way things were done. Yeah, right. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that 
and I think about this a little bit because I was only 22 and I hadn't seen much of the world. I was quite sheltered in many ways. Yeah. But coming towards the end of that year, I'd had a pretty miserable time in many ways. Yeah. But I knew I knew that that's not what I wanted my experience of that chapter in my life to be like. Mm. So I got another job and I signed on there for a one-year contract and I decided to have a refresh. Yeah. So to stay, have a refresh and I moved. I moved in with some mates, um, you know, over the river, a little bit closer to, you know, the big city and stuff and I, yeah, I was right because the next year was exponentially better and my Mandarin was coming along really rapidly because I was immersed in it. Yeah. Um, So I just kept rolling. Year by year. Yeah. And I kept getting new jobs. And in my last couple of years I worked in a publishing company and I tutored adult English a little bit and, yeah, just doubled down on learning Mandarin as much as I could. And and so by the time I came home it had been just short of six years. Six years? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) So I came back like just before I turned 28. How, was it a rewarding experience overall? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. It was it was so good. Like I've you know I've got lifelong friendships. I'm still mm. mates with so many people that I lived in Taiwan with. Um, I still speak pretty good Mandarin, considering how long I've been back for. Yeah. Um, you know I lost my writing, uh, which is very usual. Yeah. Um, it's. Writing's very difficult and you have to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't, it just goes away. Like you've got to memorise all the stroke order and stuff. So if you, yeah, if you don't keep practising, it's just gone. Um, I can still read a bit though. Um, I've actually just started, uh, yeah, this year I was like, you know what, I'm going to start learning it again. And so I started doing a little bit of online work, like just to keep it up. Is, and, is um, it hard to pick, pick back up again? No. No. No, it's all in there. It is in there. Yeah. That's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It, yeah. It's it's very much all in there. Like I started, you know, I started a couple of weeks ago on this like big online beginner thing yeah. and I was like, oh, my gosh, like no. And I've just like skipped through chapters and chapters and I'm like, okay, there's I'm probably still at an advanced level but yeah. need holes filled really. See, I don't know if I'd be able to, if if I was so ingrained in that world for six years and then come to it years later to try and do it again. I don't know. For me, I don't know if I'd be able to. I don't know if it would stay in there that long. Yeah, well, I yeah. think the interesting thing is that um, for years after I came home, I often found myself still translating things that people said to me just right. in English. Like interpreting it so across into Mandarin, yeah, yeah, which yeah. was a habit that yeah. I, that I developed in Taiwan. Yeah. So, you know, when I was listening to people around me speaking Mandarin, I'd always interpret it into English, like yeah. just as practice. Mm. Like on the train, people are having a conversation over there, I'd follow it, <laughs> and I'd, I'd interpret it into English just to get my brain yeah. going. Yeah, yeah. And then when I was hanging out with my expat mates, we'd be t- talking in English. And a lot of the time they'd say something and I just would go into autopilot and would interpret it across into Mandarin. Like it's just a habit I started, like a little mind game for myself to practice. And for years after I came back, I found myself all the time just slipping back into it. Just just, you'd say sentence to me in in my brain, I'd just interpret it into Mandarin just to make me practice, like for no other reason. And, um, you know, every now and then I'd watch the Mandarin news 
And another really interesting thing, and I think this would only, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I assume it would only happen if you learned a, a, another language in kind of an uh, immersion sort of situation. Yeah. This has never stopped for me whenever, like, I'm walking on the street and say there's a family or a couple or something mm. speaking Mandarin, I just tune in to what they're talking about the same way I would if I heard you and your friend speaking English next yeah, to me right. on a walk. Yeah. And that's never stopped for me. Yeah. Still, yeah, still to this day, like, I'll just immediately tune in like I've just changed the radio station. I love I love that you... that. That's been with you since you sort of, you know, left that sort of life behind as well, that you've always just maintained that. Yeah, I love that as well because it's like, you know, six years is a long period of time. It's also a short period of time in the scheme of my life. Like most people would probably just, you know, move on with their lives and, you know they wouldn't really sort of still probably stick with it like like you did. Yeah, see, I think yeah. I think because I'd always been curious about yeah. Mandarin and because I'd, I'd during school, the schools that I went to yeah. were all quite heavy on language. Yeah. So for the majority of my high school and college life, we were learning other languages. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things as well that, you know, if you learn a language when you're young enough, it's kind of easier to pick them up for yes. the rest of your life because... Yes. I think, and I'm sure there's so much research into this, but for me personally, it's that I know how my brain works and what it needs to do to learn another language, which I learned when I was about 12. Yeah. And so that's just a skill that's like carried through for me. So when I was learning Mandarin, I was like, oh, I know what my brain needs to do to be able to understand this new language. Um, But because I, you know, I purposefully went to Taiwan because I wanted to learn Mandarin. Yeah. And I think that was a big thing. Like when I came home, I I didn't want I didn't want to lose it, and yeah. I, I certainly haven't done enough to keep it. Yeah. But you know all those little habits and things that I had while I was over there. Like it's funny that they still sneak in, even to this day, even though I haven't forcefully tried to make them mm. <laughs> be maintained. So what what was the plan when you came back to Australia? There was no plan, and. Was that refreshing not to have a plan? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was horrible. Yeah. Um, it was horrible and I didn't realise at the time, it wasn't until maybe four or five years later that I realised how hard that part of my life had been. Right. So I came back from Taiwan and my partner at the time their English and they moved to Australia with me and we had to travel around Australia to get their second year working holiday visa. So we had to do farm work and stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, as Australian weather is, it was incredibly temperamental. There were floods. Like we'd, we'd drive for 24 hours to get up into outback Queensland for a job that we'd gotten. And a week later the crop would be wiped out in the floods, yeah. which was obviously dramatically harder on the farmers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. I don't feel yeah. like we were the victims yeah. in this situation. <laughs> but it was, it was really hard for us as well because we had no money. We'd spent most of our savings on this van and, yeah, like long story short, we met, we got their second year working holiday visa and then our relationship of almost six years broke up. So 
I was I was basically jobless. You've lo- you've lo- you've sort of um, those pillars in your life sort of just evaporated. That's right, because yeah. it was homeless, yeah. jobless, yes, and um, you know, uh, out of this long term relationship yeah. as well. So I'd always known that I wanted to move to Melbourne when we got back and and we got that visa stuff sorted yeah. and whatever. So yeah, I ended up in Melbourne and. Um, really long story short, I couldn't get a job. Yeah. I couldn't get a job. Everyone was like, ah, oh, six years in Taiwan, interesting. And they just, you know, would draw their own conclusions about, you know, wh- why it was. No one was impressed that I'd wanted to learn a, a language and had moved overseas. Yeah. No one was impressed that, you know, I'd worked at a publishing company writing books and editing. Like it was, it was the opposite. Like everyone was like, well... You, like you can't stick at anything. Yeah, like you did these yeah. degrees and these. It wasn't like wow, what an adventurer. We'd love yeah, to have yeah. someone with that adventurous spirit yeah. in our company. So um, yeah, I ended up working in a job that I hated. And what was, was that? What was the job? It was it was in a call center, which was one of the few jobs that I'd said that I would never do. Yeah. And yeah. Like I, I don't care about work. Like I'll do anything. I'd just yeah. come off the farms. Yeah. You know, I'd just yeah. come off yeah. a year of like yeah. picking fruit and stuff. Like, yeah. I, you know, I, there's so many bad jobs that I've done in my life. And, um, yeah, I have absolutely no issue with hard work. But a call centre, I knew that my brain wouldn't be able to cope yeah. in a call centre environment. Yeah. And I was correct. <laughs> <laughs> how, long did, how long did it take? Oh, days. I mean, days? I, stu- I stuck it out because I yeah. had to. Yeah. But I um, I got myself into a supervisor's role as quickly as possible. Yeah. And, I mean, I had to, like, play games during the day, like, <laughs> mentally. Yeah. And my friend and I had to, like, race each other. Like, we'd race each other to try and get as many calls as we... Like, we had to turn everything into a game yeah. in order to be able to endure the days. But the reality was that, I, like, I needed the money. Yeah. I needed the money. I needed the job. So, yeah, I um I did that and then I ended up working in the department for a little while and then I basically left to be a comedian, which, which <laughs> you know, of all the weird things that I've said so far, yeah. it's the weirdest bit because it had never been on my radar. Yeah, right. Like it had been a deeply subconscious yeah. idea. Well, how, how did you – when was the sort of um, moment you said you wanted to do comedy? What was what was the thing that sort of sparked that, that motivation in you to be a comedian? Probably a third-life crisis after a <laughs> breakup. So I'd had I'd had that major relationship break up, and then a, a little while later, I'd gotten into this terrible relationship, and it broke up. And not long after, I think my thirtieth birthday, mm. and it was it was like a cliche moment in a movie where I woke up one morning and I went, "I'm going to try comedy." <laughs> so and it was just like that, was it? It was literally yeah. like that, and because it, I'd never consciously thought about it. Like people had always told me I should yeah. be a comedian. But I always knew there was a difference between being funny socially yeah. and being able to be a comedian. Yeah. I knew it wasn't a matter of me just getting up on stage and yeah. having a hilarious riff and mm. then getting to tour the world. So I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't really consciously thought of it. And 
Yeah, I, I got up, I got out of bed and I got my laptop that morning, like immediately after I had the yeah. thought and I signed up to a comedy workshop like on the spot Just, and that was yeah. that was it. Like I did the comedy workshop like maybe four or five weeks later and then, you know, it was a week of working up a five-minute set and mm. at the end of it you had to perform in front yeah. of a room full of people and... The main thing I got out of that workshop, to be honest, was just the opportunity to be on stage. Yeah. How how, how aware um, were you of like Australian comedians at that time? Barely. Barely. I mean, I could yeah. have listed five yeah. Australian comedians who I liked. Yeah. But my exposure to them would largely have been through like panel shows or yes. something. Like I wasn't a stand-up fan. Mm. I, I wasn't not a stand-up fan. I just didn't watch it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, I grew up more on, like, British TV comedies yes, yeah. and, yeah, definitely more of a TV comedy, uh, like, sitcom kind of background than stand-up. Yeah. Um, yeah, so other than watching a bit of Eddie Murphy and Richard Pryor, like, yeah. when I was younger, yeah, there hadn't been a lot of stand-up in my orbit, really. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I wasn't aware as well. So, yeah, so funny you should say that because um, after that workshop I didn't know how to get into comedy. Yeah. And I reached out to a couple of comedians that I had like a tenuous link to and one of them was just basically like don't bother <laughs> and which was heartwarming and <laughs> and the other one ignored me, like left me on red. And, um, yeah, so... It, um, so what I did, and it's interesting because years later I found out how this positioned me huh. in the Australian comedy scene for a, for a short while, I wrote a one-hour show because <laughs> I didn't know what to do. <laughs> were, you, were, were you conscious of the fact that you were writing a one-hour show? Yeah. You were? Yeah. yeah. I was writing a one-hour show just to put on. Yeah, right. Because I was like, well, yeah. I want to be a stand-up comedian now. Like I had yeah. fun doing that. And it wasn't that I thought... And this is funny because this I know this is a percept people have told me since. People who are now friends of mine have told me that the perception was that I'd done my five minutes on stage. Well, not even, because people didn't even know I'd done that course because it was so far <laughs> yeah. out of the realm yeah. of like the mainstream, you know, comedy scene. Yeah. That this person we've never heard of is just touring a one hour show. Like You don't do that. You don't do that. You're not allowed to <laughs> no, do that. No. You're not allowed to. There's rules. There's a hierarchy. You've got to go to open mics. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it was years later that, you know, the the first of, you know, my now mates kind of brought it up to me where pe- people perceived it as arrogant and as, you know, um, uh, making a mockery yeah. of the art form, yeah. thinking, you know, just thinking that I was so special that I could skip all the steps and put a one-hour show on. Yeah. And, it, and it was like I didn't, I absolutely did not think I was special. Yeah. I did not think that I'd written an award-winning show. I was under no illusions no. as to what the show was and it was no. me having a crack at something because I didn't know yeah. how else to do it. And, you know, I, I think I did it. Two or three times. And then I put a show in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and I still had never done an open mic. <laughs> and then and then my mates later were going to me like, why didn't you Google like open mics? And I'm like, you've got to know about open mics to Google open mics. Like I didn't know open mic comedy yeah. 
as a concept. Didn't know it was a thing, yeah. Yeah, I didn't yeah. know it as a concept. Like yeah. you've got to understand that something exists yeah. to be doing that. Because you've got to be a little bit steeped into the world of comedy or a comedy fan to actually realise, oh, no, you have to go to open mics first. That's ex- Yeah, well, well, I yeah. mean, you don't. You don't yeah. have to do anything yeah. <laughs> as, yeah. as it turns yeah. out. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> But but I know what you mean. Like you've got to yeah, you've got to be yeah. somehow in the scene. Yeah. In order to be aware that they exist. And and I was so far out of the scene when I became a comedian that I simply didn't know. And it's funny because yesterday I emceed a raw comedy heat, which if anyone's listening who doesn't know what that is, it's the major competition that happens um uh through the Melbourne International Comedy Festival each year to, you know, find the hottest new acts in the country sort of thing. And I emceed a heat for it. And whenever I do that, like I make a real point of telling the people competing mm. that firstly rules not everything. Like it's yeah. great that they've got the opportunity to mm. compete in it, yeah. but it's not everything. And I always make a point of saying like oh, I never did raw and, you know, I, I've been a professional comedian for I years. I decided to put on a Howard show <laughs> the first time I did comedy. <laughs> yeah, don't, yeah, I mean. <laughs> what are you doing here? <laughs> You're wasting your time. Just write a horrible show. Yeah, just show. write a whole show, put it in the comedy festival, don't road test it, just go, do it. Yeah. I would never, ever advise anyone to do what I did. If nothing else, it was not good for me socially. Yeah. <laughs> I had to undo a lot of poor perceptions of me yeah. um, in subsequent years. But, but no, the point is that there, there are other avenues. Yeah. Like there, there absolutely are and... Um, yeah, and it, it worked for me in the end, yeah. you know, um, and I don't regret doing it the way that I did it yeah. either because the alternative was to do nothing. Yeah. Like at the time with no knowledge of open mic um, rooms or anything, it's like wh- what was I to do? Write a one-hour show, use my public relations and event planning skills to sell it out mm. and then do that several times over over a couple of years, practice writing. By the time I enter the comedy festival, I've got a much better show than I would have two years ago. Not great still. Yeah. But, you know, that's when I started getting into the scene after doing the comedy festival yeah. and stuff. So it's the alternative yeah. would be to still be in a job that I hate because I'd never taken the leap, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I don't have any regrets about it overall, but I also am definitely not out there telling people to write a one-hour <laughs> show. <laughs> so how did those first shows go then? Um, were, were they well received? Did people laugh? Or, yeah, yeah, they yeah. were well received, but that's yeah. because they were friendly audiences. Yeah. Where, what venues did you did you? Um... So I did um, for a few years. I did Smith's Alternative in oh, Canberra. Okay. And the Wesley Ann in Northcote. Okay. Yeah, right. and then I went. I went on to run a monthly room at the Wesley Ann for a while. Which I did to, um, it was mostly a pro room, pros doing new material. Mm. Everyone got paid. There was one spot for someone who wasn't a pro. I emceed and it was essentially a networking exercise. Like that's how I met all of my mates and like, and the people in the comedy scene. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Plus became a better comedian because each month I'd get to watch them all do their sets and I'd get to learn off them. So... Yeah, um, yeah, the shows were well received, but in a starting out yeah. kind of fashion, like because mo- like most people trying to get into comedy, the shows consisted of a bunch of stories 
with a minor twist at the end. Yeah. Which is usually the starting point yeah. to new comics. Yeah. Like there'll be a story with no punchlines in it and at the end there'll be a tiny payoff that's not enough to justify the huge lead up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And most of us do that for yes. a few years until because yes. I'm still very much a storyteller. Yeah. But now I know how to pepper those yeah. stories with jokes. Yes. Whereas back in the day, the joke would be three minutes later and it usually would just get like a ha, 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 ha. We sort of saw that coming, mm. but ha, ha, ha. So, yeah, yeah, they were as well received as they could have been. And people came back. Yeah. Like they, they kept coming back because they wanted to be supportive, but they weren't fans. They were all people that were in one way or another linked to me. Interesting. Yeah, which I, which is, you know, very typical as well, I guess, yeah. of starting out. Now, you don't have management either. You, you do everything yourself, is that right? Currently, yeah. I yeah. have had management, but, yeah, currently I'm independent again. What? Why did you make that decision to sort of just independently, you know, do it yourself? Why um, not have management? Well, I mean, the thing about having management is I think it's a really common perception of, amongst comedians only yeah. that that's a marker of success. Yeah is to have management. Yeah. In reality, there's a lot of independent comedians in Australia who choose not to have management. Yeah. I I haven't made a conscious decision to not have management. Mm. It's just um, the stars haven't aligned for me at the moment for the right management for me. Right. And that's what it comes down yes. to. And that's what I always say to comedians who um, are sort of starting out. Because whenever you talk to comedians that have been going for a few years, like mm. often – if they're telling you about their goals or whatever, they're like, well, I want to be a pro comedian and I want this manager. Yeah. And you're like, well, why do you want that manager? And they're like, because they're good and I love this comedian and they've got that manager. Yeah. And it's it, as I said, it's only a perception that comedians have that you have to have you management. You have to have one, yeah. It's actually, it's a business decision. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with how successful you are or it doesn't necessarily correlate with how much money you're making because mm. there's a lot of people with management that aren't even full-time comedians yet. Yeah. So and, and I think this would probably be a frustration if you're a comedy manager as yes. well is that I think like, um, you know, there's a uh, possibility for some comedians to think that, if you're an amateur comedian and you get picked up by management suddenly overnight, you're a professional comedian making X amount of dollars a year. Yeah. And it doesn't work that way. Like they take the load off you in the areas that they can to free you up creatively. Yeah. But you still have to creatively drive everything. Mm-hmm. And you have to be aware of what your trajectory looks like in your mind. Yes. Yes. And you've got to be taking projects to them all the time that you want to and, and then they'll help you facilitate them. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's this real perception that you can just sit back and write jokes and, you know, you'll be rich and famous suddenly and it's like it doesn't it doesn't work that way. So for me it's always been a, it's always been a very clear-cut business decision and it's like do, do we both understand what my goals are and are you yeah. capable of helping me facilitate those? Yeah. So, yeah. And that's, that, it's yeah. as simple as that for me. So I remember you making a post quite a while ago saying, well, I don't have management, but I've managed to successfully have this um, Melbourne run just by effectively using social media. 
yeah. getting, getting the word out there by word, you know, word of mouth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I mean, you know, so sometimes I like to just remind other comedians yeah. of sort of stuff like that as well because. It doesn't make you like, you know, a, an unsuccessful comedian if you don't have management. It's not directly correlated to ticket sales yeah. or the no- amount of work that you're getting. Yeah. Or anything yeah. like that, really. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah, really simply it's like it's it's a business relationship. Mm. And if you can find the right business relationship to complement your, I mean, if you're a professional comedian, what you're doing is your business. Like what I do pays my bills. Yes. Like, yes. It's a business. Yeah. I have to keep it ticking over like a business. Yeah. I'm very fortunate that I love doing it. Yeah. But like I'm not out there doing it for fun because I can't afford to. It's mm. just lucky that it is fun. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, my general advice usually is like you just wait till you find the right business relationship for you and you'll work well together because you're supposed to be working together. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's just fascinating. From from someone who's sort of on the outside of comedy, just hearing someone's take on that is just I've never heard, heard that before. So that's great. I love yeah, right. that. I love that sort of take. Um so when how did the um Amazon Prime thing come about then? Was that sort of self generated again? Or? Oh Paramount yeah. Plus. Oh Paramount Plus, sorry. No, that's okay. Yeah. No, I was with management at the time. Yes. And uh they basically, I think there was eight of us. Yeah. They chose eight of us to do our, yes. um, yeah, to record our specials. So, yeah, that was a, a business deal that was brokered by my management at the time. Right. And it was great. It was a great experience. How did that feel just having, you know, I'm here to record a special? What, what was going through your mind? Yeah, well, it was really interesting because I was really busy. I'd been mm. touring. I was meant to be touring right up until the day before I shot my special. And a few weeks out I was like, wait, what? <laughs> you didn't like, have time to really sort of yeah, sit well, with it. Well, I pulled yeah. the pin on that last little leg because mm. I was like, I'm not going from being on tour to having 10 hours to get my head in the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sort of thing. So what I did was I pulled yeah. the pin on the last few shows. I did a refresher show just for free in a little venue mm. so I could run the show again because th- that part of the tour that I was doing was like part of a lineup. So I wasn't I, I wasn't actually, for the previous like three or four weeks, I wasn't actually touring Silver Linings, which yeah. was the show. Mm-hmm. So it's not like the show was red hot because I'd done it five times that week. Yeah. It was the opposite. Like I'd been doing it every night for months and then I just had four weeks off it. So I was like I can't go from doing a lineup to a show. Yeah with different material to then switching back into silver linings yeah. with one opportunity, like one take in a 500 seater that is sold out. Mm. So um, I came home early, did that trial, and then it wasn't until the day of the record that I rocked up and saw how many people were working on it. Yeah. That the kind of magnitude yeah. of it in terms of my career oh, really hit me. Film crew here, yeah. Like obviously, <laughs> I knew all of that, <laughs> but like when you rock up and you see so many people buzzing around yeah. backstage, <laughs> yeah, and you're like, wait up! Like all of these people, their job for today has been to get ready 
to do an awesome recording of the show that I wrote. Yeah. Like that is wild. And it's just me. It's not no one else is here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was so weird. Um Yeah, but it was it was super fun. It was really daunting. It was the most nervous I've ever been. Um I've played much bigger venues than that, but yeah. not for a full hour. Yeah, right. And you know, often in lineups and things. So, you know, they're not necessarily just there to see you. Yeah. It was also the biggest solo show I'd ever done. I think I just said that, didn't I? Yeah. Pre- previous to that, a few months earlier, I'd done my biggest ever solo show for one hour and that was to 250 people. Yeah. That was at the Street Theatre in Canberra. Yeah. So that was the biggest one hour show I'd ever done. And then a few months later, that was doubled. And recorded for my special. And I mostly spent that time pre-recording trying to get that out of my head. (laughs) I was like, stop thinking about that. Do not think about it. And maybe the most disconcerting thing was that um, for the cameras, the house lights are up. Yeah. So when you first go out there, you can see every single one of those 500 faces. Mm. You can see that person in row 14 yeah. on their phone. Yeah. Like you can see someone yawning up the back of the theatre. You can see them talking in row 22. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'd like that as an audience member for the house lights to be on the entire time. I agree. Yeah. Usually it's very inhibiting for an audience. So there's some gigs that we do around town here where it's not really house lights, but it's the way their lighting's set up that the yeah. audience is quite it's lit. visible, yeah. And, and the audience is aware of it. Mm. That's usually the problem in those kinds of rooms yeah. is that the audience is aware of it so they're self-conscious. Yes. So you're never going to get a hot crowd when mm. they know that you can see them. Yeah. Like there's a lot of logic behind why comedy audiences are usually dimly lit if lit at all. Yeah. So... The Comedy Festival, the Melbourne Comedy Festival, does this thing every year. It's called the Funny Ton where they select three, you know, comedy enthusiasts or up-and-coming writers to review comedy festival shows. Mm -hmm. So they get like a season pass and they have the ability to go into shows and review them. I did it one year and I reviewed your show, gave it a very positive review. Thank you. And you reposted it. Um, that was a great experience for me, by the way, just sort of because I'm a very biased reviewer because I just <laughs> love comedy. Even like new comedians that I've never heard of that I'm just taking a punt on, like I'm, I can be a very supportive um, audience member. Like, okay, well, they're just starting out. I can, I can see what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I was very biased and I was giving everyone, you know, four or five stars. <laughs> and, right. So what I was doing, I was actually working at a hotel that year as an overnight duty manager, so basically going in to work the overnights to greet guests who were arriving late or checking out early. So in that time, I was going out in in the evening to, you know, watch these shows and then I would do the reviews overnight, you know, on the hotel's time. <laughs> <laughs> It was the best, awesome. best year I've ever had at the Melbourne Comedy Festival. Yeah, right. What a setup. Yeah. <laughs> but circling back to reviews in sort of general, you're you're not a fan of them. No. Usually. 
No. Unless they're positive, right? <laughs> um, or have viewers been in your audience? Yeah, yeah, I don't love it. Yeah. Um, I don't love it because each year during the comedy festival, there's specific reviewers that get out and about each mm. year where you can read their reviews and you can identify easily biases mm. towards a certain kind of comedian. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is a male comedian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not always the case, but there's there's a good cohort yep. in Melbourne of men yep. who do reviews during comedy festival and you are hard-pressed to find a positive one towards a woman. Or towards yeah. an up and comer, yeah. Like what you were saying, like they're yes. going, they're going in and they're reviewing the most vulnerable of comedians, yeah. who are starting out, dipping a toe, uh, trying to build an audience, you know. And it could destroy that person's sort of self esteem for. Well, that's the thing. It's well. not. It's not just yeah. their attitude towards comedy or being a comedian yeah. that's at stake. Yeah, I've read some. Really cruel reviews. Yeah. And even if I weren't a comedian out there in the arena, mm. I'd be like, writing like this about anything that another human has created yeah. that wasn't created with malice mm. is cruel. Yeah. You, you're a cruel person with a platform. Mm. And it never changes. Absolutely never changes. So I don't invite reviewers. If they buy a ticket, there's nothing you can do about it. If they ask the comedy festival for a ticket, my understanding is there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah. Um, so they do come to my shows. Um, last year two reviews that I got were by reviewers that I saw in the audience. One of them was howling with laughter the whole hour and was yelling out and not maliciously but was getting involved in the show because he was so into it. And then he gave me a three-star review and said my show wasn't flashy but was full of laughs. What does that even mean? (laughs) Well, this is a really weird thing was last year um, and I generally don't read my reviews because I don't want them. (laughs) I don't want them. (laughs) What's that? I I always ruin this but but I get the gist of it. There's a Brené Brown quote and I love Brené Brown so much and it's like it's it's basically like don't take criticism from somebody who's not in the arena with you. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, like this flashy thing – it came up twice in reviews for my show last year. And I looked it up because I was like, what does that mean? Like it, it, it yeah. doesn't sound good. And as someone who doesn't know what it means. I didn't come out singing show tunes? Or- well, that, that's, yeah. that's, that was my yeah. perception of it. I was like, oh, sorry I didn't give you the old razzle-dazzle enough. Like I'll wear a, a top yeah. hat and yeah. tails yeah. next year. Yeah. But apparently it's like it's like no bells and whistles, like just, yeah. just straight up stripped back comedy essentially. Yeah. And I'm like. It, it sounds negative. Yeah. But it's actually just saying that I just had a solid hour of laughs. But anyone yeah. who doesn't understand what it means, including me, like it sounds negative. Yeah. And um, the, 
essentially what it's saying as well is my shows don't solve the world world's problems and I've never claimed they do and I've never really strived to because it goes back to that thing I was saying earlier about just having an inherent desire to make people laugh. Yeah. I want to make them happy. I want to make that whole room happy. How do I do that? I talk about everyday things that you all get, everyday things that you can all relate to, and I try and make them as funny as possible. And that's pretty much as simple as it is. Now, I don't necessarily need three-star reviews being splashed around the place for a show that is an hour of solid laughter Mm. and that people really enjoy it. And after the show you get, you get reviews from audience members and that's what matters. Yeah. You get tweets saying, I had a really hard week. This thing happened in my life. Being able to go to your show with my sister and us both to have an hour of laughs when we're having a hard time yeah. really meant the world to us. Like that's the kind it, of review that I want. It trumps any review. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. And so yeah. like for years now I've firmly believed in that aspect of it mm. but and you know what like really like it's 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 actually got nothing to do with me getting three star reviews mm. and my show being called not flashy yeah. i have been there when pretty new comedians have been sobbing their hearts out over horrible words that have been published on well, a public platform a, a, a review a negative review could shake someone's sort of um you know meaning as to why they're doing something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. and that's exactly right. And, you know, people argue, well, if you're putting some work out there publicly, you've got to expect it to be criticised. And it's like, why? Mm. Like, why? This is a job. Yeah. You know, like I don't go down to Baker's Delight and yell over the counter like, you're handling the bread rolls wrong, you suck. Two stars. Yeah, two stars. Yeah, look at you, you've just... You've knocked a few of the raisins off yeah. that scone. You suck. Get a new yeah. job. You're going nowhere. Yeah. Like, but then, it, and it's it's the unnecessary cruelty, as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, me me, you know, talking about getting a, a a middle of the road three star review, and th- those reviews weren't nasty. Yeah. They weren't nasty. They just were. They're also at odds with how these reviewers were reacting mm. in the room. Yeah. Um, someone who used to work in the press told me recently, they're a personal friend now, and that, that's not true. They still do. It's true that they're a personal friend, but they still do work in the press, but they don't work in that side of things anymore. They were telling me that years ago when they were around the comedy festival and they weren't actually writing reviews but they were kind of adjacent, there were was a publication that they were working for where the editor came out and said that too many of the reviews had X amount of stars and to change them. And so they went through and had to choose like 10 shows that they bumped down to three-star reviews when they were going to get fours. What? <laughs> what is the aim? Why? I don't see. The, what is the end goal there? Like why? Why do that? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, and this is the thing I also always say to to comedians who are so heartbroken over over a, a horrible review is 
no one really reads them. No. No, no one reads them. No. Like when I said before, like I didn't necessarily need like three-star reviews yeah. floating around. This is... um. Yeah, as as a, as a punter myself, I don't read them. No, I just go through the guide and say, "Oh, this person seems interesting enough. I'll go out and take a punt on him." Yeah, yeah. well, or also her. you're a proper comedy fan. Yeah, right. So you also understand that it's very subjective. Yeah. So even if that reviewer has given somebody a one star review and says it's the worst show they've ever seen, they're not you. It might be the best show you've yes. ever seen. Like you might yeah. actually get it. Yeah. Because, you know, there was a time where reviews really meant a lot yeah. and people did really take them on board. But I think these days, like, people are like, well, I mean, we don't all like the same kind of comedy. So no, exactly. what's one that- person's opinion of, like, what does that mean? Yeah. And for the comedy festival, it's such a, you know, broad range of comedy that you're getting. I mean, it is sub- subjective, as you said, like, a Gary Starr show, for instance, is going to be like <laughs> the polar opposite to, you know, your show. Yeah, 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 absolutely. <laughs> so how do you review comedy? Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. yeah, which is the same that I always say about awards. Yeah. It's like awarding a best show. Like, again, yeah. to use Gary Starr again. Yeah. If if you're listening and you've never seen Gary Starr, firstly, Incredible. go see Gary Starr. <laughs> I went three times. Also, a Canberran. <laughs> Is he? Yes. That's right. Oh, yes, that's yes. right. I actually found out that so he um, did a couple of plays at the Kuma Little Theatre mm-hmm. and I also, Kuma is one of the places I lived as well right. in high school and I did some shows at the Kuma Little Theatre as well. Oh, wow. Because he was on the podcast and he told us, oh, yeah, I did some shows at the Kuma Little Theatre. I'm like, what? Awesome, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. He's anyway, so, so great. Yeah, sorry to derail, but yeah. No, yeah, not at all. Gary Starr, he's great. Yeah. yeah, we worked out recently yeah. that we used to mix in the same circles yeah. many, many years ago in Canberra and, like, mm. we knew each other in Canberra and then had this big disconnect and then That's... knew each other as comedians. We're like, wait up, we know this family. Yeah. Like, we That's we used so to go to all the same parties. Like, we so, knew each other. So, so bizarre. <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> but um, so Damien, um, his yes. character is Gary Starr. Yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, if you're a regular listener, you've probably already heard him on the podcast, but otherwise he's just, he's a clown, like a, a yes. literal clown. And he's so funny. His show at Melbourne International Comedy Festival last year, I went one night with a mate and her husband and we howled with laughter for the hour. Yes. And then I decided my partner would love the show. So yeah. I bought a ticket the following night <laughs> and went straight back with her. Yeah. So I did a similar thing. I sort of, the first time I went by myself and then I'm like, oh, this is just incredible it's just so hard to describe to someone um so i took some friends the following night yeah not so much to watch the show again but to watch their reaction yeah i think i felt like and for the third time again i took another friend who had seen i was like very interested in his reaction yeah the show (laughs) yeah awesome (laughs) awesome so yeah so it's that it's that thing again of like um the most outstanding show does it um go to Gary Starr or Damien Power, mm. who is yeah. a straight up, like very clever, very, very, very funny yeah. stand-up yes. that has often a much deeper meaning behind what he's saying yeah. and it's who, who has a better show? Yeah. Neither of them. They're totally exactly. different. Yeah. They're apples and oranges. Did they both make me laugh until I cried? Yes. Are they both excellent shows? Absolutely. Am I going to rank one of them above the other one? Why would I? What's the point? Like why would I? (laughs) It makes no sense. So 
Yeah, I mean, so I think, yeah, anyway, to summarise, um, yeah, I became really dirty on reviews when I started reading just absolute cruelty. Mm. And it never, oh, that's the final point that I wanted to make. Um, yeah, like having having a, a suboptimal review for our shows now doesn't mean a huge amount once you've been going for a few years and you've got loads of stuff out there on Google. But I remember many years ago getting a bad review. I got a bad review and something had happened in my show with some punters that I had to deal with and I dealt with it as kindly as I possibly could but they were causing a massive disruption and they were drunk and they were playing with the sound equipment next to them. And I really politely, I knew them actually, Mm. and which isn't why I was polite to them. I would have been anyway, but I asked them if they needed to pop outside for a minute to gather themselves. I didn't kick them out. I told them take a couple of minutes and come back in if you like. Mm. They politely declined. I kept going with the show. Now the reviewer was sat up the back. They could not see anything that these people had done or were doing. Mm. And then they, in their review, they said that I like really took them to task. And they were, it was something like, um, you know, Kirsty comes across as like so um, like sweet and playful but get on her bad side. And I sent it to a few of my mates who had been in the show that night and they were like, that's not what happened. Yeah, it doesn't sound like you either. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like I'd never do that. And, and so, yeah, my mates were like, you asked them if they needed to go outside and collect themselves. Yeah. This person's made it sound like you body slammed them from the stage. (laughs) And at the time, I mean, this is years ago, at the time there was a period of time, like there there wasn't very much. If you Googled my name on Google, my website would come up and basically this review for months, for months. And I requested it be taken down and essentially it was overridden and it wasn't allowed to be taken down, even though there were multiple people that were like, that's not what happened. So, like, this review is a lie. Yeah. But it also makes her sound terrible. Yeah. And so it it just remained out there in the ether until basically I'd done enough work for it to go away. And, uh, like, yeah, it's you'd be hard-pressed finding it now, but it was like, but... How come you get to have the power of making up a lie that gets to be published when the entire room would collectively be like, Mm. that is not what happened, that reviewer had no idea what was going on down the front of the room, but they just get to like, like it's slander really. Yeah, and now now it's attached to your, that review is attached to your name obviously. So, so, you know, to to be one of the first things that come up on Google and yeah. people search for your name too. It's just sort of a, well, it's a bit of a tarnish on, on your work. Yeah, totally. Because, well. you know, what's yeah. to say someone's not going yeah. to look at it and go, oh, wow, that sounds horrible. Yeah. Why I mean, would I in, go and see her? Yeah. 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 I mean, the only saving grace about it is like, like from the other angle, it's like, you know, I was so unknown and so new that there was so little on Google about me that people also weren't really Googling me. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm sure not that many people actually read it, but it stressed me out for a long time. Yeah, of course it was. And again, I was only starting out and that's, that, so that goes back to the thing that we were saying, like, 
your armour is a lot stronger when you've been going for 10 years and when you have a reputation yeah. and when people know you than it is when you're three saying, years yeah, yeah, in and yeah. someone's saying she's horrible to people yeah. in her shows when it didn't happen. And so I think that's how I became really headstrong about not wanting reviewers in was after reading just, yeah, just really vindictive reviews for comedians that weren't in a place professionally or personally where they could cope with reading those things about them. And I'm like, you don't understand the power of your words Mm. and what they could have either for this comedian in respect to their career and their passion for comedy or their sense of self and their self-esteem. Like you could shake a foundation as well. Yeah, 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 it could it yeah. could do something terrible. Yeah. Like it could have terrible consequences. Yeah. And it's incredibly irresponsible. And so I've just got no interest in being a part of it. Mm. So I always say, if you love the show, please let your mates know. Yeah. Let them know why. Let them know what you loved about yeah. it. You know, she didn't target anybody in the audience. Yeah. It was just an hour of straight up laugh. Yeah. She didn't try to school us on anything. Like we, yeah. it was just silly. Like wh- whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, during Comedy Festival, that's why you'll always see me, like, you know, resharing tweets and stuff yeah. from people because these are the people that could be doing anything in the world yeah. with their Friday night yeah. or their Tuesday night or whatever night and with their hard-earned money, especially in a cost-of-living crisis, and they've chosen to come and hang out with me. Yeah. Yeah. So I care about what they think. Yes. I want them to have a good time. The first time I saw you, I would just sort of dis- – I think I described the show as just pure – joy my (laughs) smile didn't leave my face for the entire hour (laughs) and that's sort of and i've been a fan ever since so i think that was probably back in 20 probably 21 i think think oh yeah post post lockdown just yeah lockdown yeah i'm like oh incredible she's amazing so thanks mate um your sort of style of comedy is is just joy it's sort of it's not sort of targeting anyone or you know, it's it's not malicious in any way. You're not punching down. So was that a sort of, is it a conscious decision? Was it a conscious decision on your part to just that sort of brand of comedy? Yeah. It's very hard balance to sort of do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, it, it definitely was conscious, but. Because I wouldn't call it self-deprecating. It's not sort of self-deprecating no. humour either. No. So that's another sort of you know, odd balance to um, doing comedy as well. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yeah, I, I never wanted to be self-deprecating because I I don't feel <clears throat> like I'm the butt of the joke. Yeah. So I'm not going to pretend that I do to give people a laugh. Mm. Like that's, I don't have that perception of myself. So, um, and, you know, I, wa- I want to be authentic uh, on stage. So it was a conscious decision but it was also... Um, it's naturally what I think is funny. Yeah. I don't think making fun of people is funny. I don't think making people feel bad about themselves is funny. I don't think punching down on other people is funny. Um, I don't think talking about a certain demographic of people and getting a room full of people to laugh about that topic is funny anyway, but especially if there's people representing that group in the room that are going to feel, you know, bullied and and embarrassed and humiliated by that. Like I've never taken any pleasure in any of that kind of stuff, like even just socially. Um, 
So that made it easy. Mm. It was like, what am I doing in my stand-up? I'm talking about things that I find funny. That stuff's not funny to me, you know, um, so I'm not going to talk about it. Um, the, the conscious bit, though, I think comes into play where when I'm writing new material, I really go over it with a fine-tooth comb because I'm not perfect. Mm. Like, I'm absolutely not perfect. I make mistakes all the time. Um, I miss things. Um, I was socialised in a certain way. Mm. Like, yeah. I, you know, um, our world's changed over the last 40 years as well. So I'll look I'll look at a joke and, and you know, sometimes I'll, I'll look at something and I'll be like, oh, do you know what? I could actually reword this to make it a little bit more inclusive because right now it, you know, it's kind of perpetuating a gender binary. Yeah. Just for an example. Yeah. How could I reword this where it didn't exclude people in the room that are non-binary or really easily? Yeah. I can actually do that really easily. Yeah. So why wouldn't I? Yeah. Like it's... Why um, go for the low-hanging fruit if I don't have to? Yeah, yeah. 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 Or, you know, even just even just fine-tune things yeah. a little bit. And, like, it's difficult and it's yeah. a process. Like it's... And, you know, it's... Yeah, it's something I think about a lot. It's something that I still on occasion get pulled up for and I'm cool with that if someone does it like kindly and appropriately, like calls me in and goes, oh, this thing sounds a bit like that or whatever Um, because it's all educational, you know, like there's no, I don't know, for me I, I don't feel particularly defensive these days about a learning opportunity yeah. because... My experience, my experience of the world is different to everyone else's, including yours. And it's like if I can try and capture things on stage or, you know, in writing or mm. whatever that appeal to most of us, mm. it's not always going to appeal to all of us. That's a ridiculous thing to shoot mm. for. But if I can try and include everyone in some way, like why, why wouldn't I? Yeah. I love that. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> this has been incredible. I mean, um, as I said, like, I'm socially awkward and anxious. So for me to do this five times now by myself is just incredible. You're sort legend. <laughs> Mind-blowing to me. <laughs> but something um, my co-host Harmon, who's not here, um, he gives a great um, word of advice to me is if you tell yourself that you're anxious, um, then you're telling yourself a story. You're telling yourself that story so you are going to be anxious if you tell yourself that story and i just love i love that so that's sort yep. of <clears throat> that word of advice is sort of carried with me for a while and because i also did speech therapy as a kid i sort of i'm conscious that i sort of occasionally trip over my words as well and again if i tell myself that story then i am going to trip over my words so now i just tell myself a different story no i am good at to- uh, at talking to people so you are that's the story now that i t- that i tell myself and it's words great and this is only sort of this has only happened this last year and i'm 33 and it's taken me uh, for someone else to tell me this so <laughs> that's it's it's strange that's that's <laughs> yeah. the power though isn't it of yeah. sharing knowledge with people yeah. like and sometimes it's something that you intellectually know as well, but just your mate or your co-host mm. or whatever just says something to you in a way that makes a penny drop. Yeah. You know? And so and yeah, I mean, you've just relayed that to me. So it's obviously yeah. you know, what Harmon said to you is obviously something that 
you has really resonated and that you repeat to yourself yes, in order to yes. be repeating to me. So it's like they form like a sort of mantra, like yeah. isn't it? Mm. And just and it's just such a simple sentence that like grounds yeah. you back in the mentality that you want to be in. Just tell yourself a different story. Yeah. Don't don't play that card and use it as a sort of a defense mechanism as to why you're you you have an inability to do this certain thing, like talk to people. Mm. Like or that's just for an example. But, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure. Well you're nailing it, mate. Thank you. <laughs> I've just loved having you here. Sort of to wrap things up, what is the word or what are the words of wisdom that you live by? Um Oh gosh, this is there's so many of them. This is a real tough one. Um I I'm going to have to choose one. Yeah. So I'm going to choose the one that popped in to my head quickest is I like I try not to compete with anybody other than myself. Hmm. And the only way I compete with myself is I just try to be a little bit better than yesterday, mm. if I can be. And that could be in a wide range of different areas. But, yeah, I try not to worry about what other people are up to. That's great. <laughs> this will go out the second week of Feb. Mm-hmm. So what do you have coming up? Second week of Feb. I will – okay, so – I mean, you're going around all Australia. Right? I am. Yeah, yeah thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> I'm trying to block it out. Um, I'm touring a brand new show. Yes. It's called I'll Be the Judge of That. Yep. Sounds a lot more aggressive than it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it's going all around the country. It's also actually going to New Zealand Comedy Festival this yes. year. So um, I'll be in Auckland, but I'm kicking off in Canberra, obviously. Yes. Heading back to the old stomping ground for a few shows. Um then I'm doing the whole of Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I'll be in Sydney. I'll pop over to, to Auckland for a month and then I'll do Perth, Cairns, Brizzy, Hobart, Launceston, Warrnambool and I'll chuck a, an extra bunch of shows on around the country nice. as well uh, over the next few weeks. So, yeah, I'll be the judge of that. And otherwise, like my website's kirstiewebeck.com. All of my socials are at Kirsty Webeck and I'm constantly banging on about what I'm up to on those. Go see Kirsty, everyone. She's excellent. Thank you, mate. <laughs>